We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, mailbag time. Michael Collins, we thank you for this question. Was Coach Golden a Coach Freeman hire, an administration hire, or is one of those questions, or a combination of both? Does Coach Freeman have full autonomy to replace any coach on the staff? Thank you. Well, no coach in America has full autonomy to fire a coach. There's always certain contractual things that have to be honored, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so – uh, if if a coach, as long as there's no contractual things that prevent you from firing a guy or letting a guy go, then sure, right now he has that autonomy. Do I think that that coach? Do I think that Al Golden's relationship with with the fact that he's someone that Jack Swarbrick liked? Do I think that factored into his decision? Yeah, I do. Do I think that he liked other people and he would have hired so and so if not for Jack Swarbrick liking Al Golden? No, I don't. Because I think if it was that kind of hire, you probably would have seen them push Al Golden out. I, I, you know, look, I, I think Jack Swarbrick meddles too much in, in in personnel decisions like this. But at the same time, it was Jack Swarbrick that also led the charge to bring in Chip Long and Mike Elko in 2017, not Brian Kelly. So if you're Jack Swarbrick, you're probably thinking, well, hey, I'm pretty good at this. And most people in his positions like his and you know, tend to have big egos and it's earned a lot of times. And and so I think he's going to feel like he's going to give his two cents on who they're going to hire. But the reason he can make the Tommy Reese move is because he didn't have a head coach at the time, which is partly why I think he made that move. But he's not going to walk in there and, if Al, and, and Marcus Freeman's going to say, hey, I want to fire Al Golden and, Al, and Jack Swarbrick's going to be like, no, no. You probably have a conversation about, well, why? But AD should have that conversation because I need to know if I need to protect myself from any potential you know, legal issues that might come from your decision to fire a guy. This is a this is a termination of a contract when you fire a guy. It it to us it's just football. Hey, you fire a guy, you move on. But to an athletic director, this is a I mean, we're basically violating our contract with this guy. There's consequences and repercussions of this. We need to make sure we can we do it the right way and and, and you know maybe we don't fire him. Maybe we say, hey look, we're gonna we would like you to go find another job. Brian Kelly was the king of this. Brian Kelly was great at telling coaches that he wanted to fire. Go find another job. 
and then he would help them find other jobs. So that way a guy left for a promotion and he wasn't fired. Like, you know, when uh, Urban Meyer, when Everett Withers left to go be the head coach of James Madison. Like, does anyone on the planet think that he had the option to go back to Ohio State that next year? No, he didn't. And that's how coaches will do it. And sometimes that's to say, hey, look, look we're, we're just going to look out for the coach. Other times it's more of a, a – legally it just makes this easier for mm-hmm. us. So you always have to get your athletic director's permission to fire a guy. I don't care if you're Nick Saban or somebody else because Nick Saban doesn't get to wave a magic wand and make a contract go away. You, you need to know what the specifics are of how we're going to get out of this deal. That doesn't mean if Nick Saban doesn't want a guy gone that it doesn't get done. I'm just saying, like, you need to involve people in the process to say, hey, here's here's what we have. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. And you go about that process. I think that's what that's what Jack Swarbrick's role is now. Does Jack Swarbrick going to advise Marcus Freeman? Yeah, he is, because that's just who Jack Swarbrick is. Will Marcus Freeman listen to him at times? I'm sure he will. But at the end of the day, Marcus Freeman hired Al Golden. Marcus Freeman decided to keep Al Golden. So short story long, that was a Marcus Freeman hire, in my opinion. And it's going to be up to Marcus Freeman to either get more out of Coach Golden or if they don't this season to then make a decision to go in a different direction. The staff finally has one head coach. (laughs) You couldn't help yourself, could you? As soon as you said it, it just it just hit. <laughs> so I'm happy. There's no one with full I'm autonomy happy. on one side of the ball over another. So I'm happy to report that, but no, in all seriousness, you're just joking. In all seriousness, I, I, I will say this. I think Coach Freeman, or let me just start with Jack Swarbrick. I and I say this. Respectfully, I think Jack Swarbrick, in a lot of ways, is like Jerry Jones in the college football. He 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 is in charge of the biggest brand in college football, just like Jerry Jones, arguably, is in charge of the biggest brand in the NFL. And they're both well versed. They're both influential amongst their peers and respected amongst their peers and he moves like that they're very they're very much engrossed in the business side he's a power broker he's a power it. broker so yeah. you know that's just the, and and most people like that tend to meddle they they tend to meddle and and they both haven't won in a long time <laughs> or yeah. haven't won a championship well in, in football in football i mean yeah, but we can't ignore it. He's been the can't ignore everything for else. Lacrosse championships, Absolutely. men's women's basketball fencing. championships, fencing championships. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, here's my thing on Swarbrick. He drives me nuts with certain things. He he really does, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to his desire to, like you said, to be like Jerry Jones, where I want to have my fingerprints and hire so I can feel. So I, if we win, I can kind of say to everybody, well, you know, I yeah. I had something to do with that hire. You know, I yeah. I told Marcus he should hire so-and-so. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's just who people like him are. But what frustrates me about people who are anti-Jack is that drives them nuts, and so they're anti-Jack Swarbrick. But I'm like, but you can't di- – you can't disc any – any AD at Notre Dame worth his grain of salt is going to have a little bit of that to him because you need to be that arrogant, somewhat egotistical, 
I don't care what anybody else says. This is what I believe in because that's also why he's been able to hold off super conferences for uh, played such a huge role in holding off super conferences as much as he has. You know, he's been able to, 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 um, swing a lot of weight in a lot of areas. Now he's going to have to finish his career off strong because there's, there's a lot coming at Notre Dame right now and the moves he's make, but he's done a lot of good things in that regard for Notre Dame. And so you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater because these things annoy you and they do me. You can't also ignore all the other things Mm -hmm. that, uh, that he brings to the table. And so for me, um, it's just, and if you're a head coach, you got to be smart and, and, and like, look, Sean, you know how it is, man. You got to stroke the ego sometimes. Absolutely. You know, you got to say, oh, that's a, you know, yeah, oh, that's great. And you got to make them feel happy about themselves. And like their opinions are very valued and all that. Cause it's, a lot of times they are, but it's just like, yeah, that's great. That's great. And then you walk in the door, like, okay, now I'm going to go hire the guy that I want to hire. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's yeah. what Marcus Freeman is going to have to learn to do. Yeah. So, uh, is the, and the sooner he learns to kind of do that, I think the better he'll be as a coach. But, but, to this question, Marcus Freeman wasn't going to hire Al Golden just because Al, because Jack Swarbrick wanted him to, in my opinion. I, I don't I see that at all. And I think any head coach would tell you of any big-time program that their position is political. Sure. In, in oh, several sure. ways. In several ways. And they, it's not just dealing with the alumni. It's dealing with the administration. And, you know, like you said, you have to smile and, 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 and deal with some stuff and you know, there's a famous scene in one of my favorite series, The Wire, where the new mayor says, you know, in came this group, in came this group, in came, and they all had a plate of manure for me to eat. And mm-hmm. I had and I had to eat it and smile. Like that is what it is to be in this position. And it's no different for a head coach. Like, if I'm not mistaken, I don't even think Nick Saban was on campus when Tommy came down for his visit. No, so they they did a what they did a Zoom interview. Him and Coach uh, Saban did a Zoom interview before. Right. right. He let him. I mean, and basically a lot of stuff was worked out in that Zoom. the The trip was then more about: Are you comfortable down here? Do you like it? Could you see yourself being here? Yeah. But all the other stuff was done in a Zoom call beforehand. But yes, cor- you are correct. Saban was not on campus when Tommy Reese went down for his Which means, you know, visit. he could have met with the AD when he went down right. there. Saban had to be there for right. that. So, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for what head coaches have to deal with. And they are CEOs in their own rights. Yeah. But, no. Total autonomy. If, if Nick Saban doesn't have it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, it just legally, you can't just do yeah. certain things that are in violation of signed contracts. At least you yeah. shouldn't be able to. I mean, that's just the reality. Otherwise, you can get sued and uh, lose it's a funny. lot of money. I would think the only sport, big time sport, where total autonomy might be more of a reality would probably be college basketball. Like there are some used to long, be, yeah. Back in the it day, there be. are some college basketball coaches that I would say they absolutely had total autonomy for a long time. Bobby Knight yeah. was that way for oh, a long absolutely. time. Jim Beheim was that way for a long. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. John Thompson. I, was I that would, way I would even say Jones. Dean Smith. Oh yeah, at some yeah. point in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, Absolutely. John Thompson at, at, at Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, no question. There was no AD who was going to fire John Wooden. John Wooden would fire ADs, <laughs> right? I mean, Absolutely. right. Let's be real about that. And football coaches used to be like that. Do you think the athletic director at Penn State ever had any say over what happened over, over, over Joe no. Paterno? Heck no. Which, which is partly what led to the problem. So that detriment. Had. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant here, but like one person should never have that much power. I mean, it just, it should, that's why, I mean, not to have a political conversation, but that's why I like our, our form of government better than when it's done right, better than most others, because there is no one person that wields can just do whatever the heck they want, right? There's always the checks and balances and that's needed in athletic departments as well. And the athletic directors is checked and balanced by the board or, you know, if there's a strong, actually a strong president, which I don't believe Notre Dame has, uh, you know, so there's always a little bit of that in my opinion. Yeah, when it comes to those kind of hires. But that's a really good question, Michael, and um, one that I know a lot of people have thought a lot about. the money changed all of that. Once big-time money via TV contracts came into play, the administration said there's no way we're about to allow coaches to control all of this. Because it's not about wins and losses anymore. No, no. It used to just be about, okay, we're dominant, and the money Uh came from – people being happy about the winning and losing because it was the money used to be coming from donors and boosters and they were happy if you were winning. And so if a coach won, you can do whatever the heck you want. And, and he became the, the, especially like you said in basketball, it was like this in football for a long time too, where the head coach basically would be like, Hey, I wield all the power here because the money that flows into the school is due to me and what we're doing in the football program. Once Mm -hmm. the tens and millions and and eventually hundreds of millions are going to be coming, or sorry, coming to the TV deals. Hey, you're not the big money maker anymore in regard to, you know, wielding power and getting people here. It's about it's about the the product that's on the field and being part of this, and that's where the power is now. And in some ways, I think that's good. In other ways, I think that's bad. You know, so but that's a whole different show, Sean. We could probably do a whole show on that <laughs> one. So we'll, we'll move. We'll move on to the next question. John A1, thank you. Did Chris Smith's success in the 22 defense with his play style alter where Notre Dame is looking for in this prototype nose tackle? That's a like, good question. It is, and this is the one I was referring to earlier. The reason I'll say um, that it – like part of my, my initial gut reaction is like, well, no, that's why they brought Chris Smith in. But – I don't think they thought Chris Smith was going to be the player that he was, to be honest yeah. with you. Like he got yeah. a lot bigger and stronger at Notre Dame. Like the Matt Bayless strength program did wonders for Chris Smith. He was like a 290 some pound guy at Harvard. 
And he ended up becoming like a 315 some pound guy at Notre Dame who just got big because of not because he was out like, you know, eating Cheetos and stuff. But I mean, the weight room, you remember when we were at the pro day and, and you and I looked at you like, do you see this kid's arms? Arms? Yeah. They're absurd. <laughs> They're like this big. It was insane. Uh, did like 37 reps on the bench. Man. I don't think that they anticipated Chris Smith being the player that he was. So maybe when he was that player and was able to do what he did, especially second half of the year, they're like, you know, there's some value to having a guy like this to give us 15 to 25 snaps a game. Could be. And he I, was good I can't he say was no. There. Oh, yeah. He, and he got he, better and yes. better and better as the year yes. went on, and he got more comfortable with these. Yes. And that, that needs to say, well, that right there, what you just said, he got better. Being in an environment uh, more competitive, he raised the bar. Mm-hmm. because he was surrounded by competition. You right. know, when you're at Harvard, I'm sure he played hard, but I'm sure the competition was nowhere near at the level he experienced. And a lot of kids can fold under that, that big of a change. He mm-hmm. came in and embraced it. And mm-hmm. you talk about Savilano, if he can come in and embrace that, even with everything we feel like he needs to work on, he has tremendous value. Yeah, pointing back to what Chris Smith did. Because we thought Chris Smith was just going to be depth. Like, oh, he's a good depth piece, you know. And like you said, every time you saw him step on the field, it was like, oh, this kid. And then we saw him at the pro day. We looked at his numbers, and we were like, all right, okay, way to put yourself in position to have a chance. Because that's all you can do. He put himself in position, coming from Harvard, getting to Notre Dame, where he had a better shot of getting to the next level yeah. than he would have if he had just tried to go from heart. Yeah. All right. Good question, John. Very good question. Rob Oscar, thank you for the question. Weird question for you. The NC State game will be a noon kickoff as a coach. How do you prepare differently for an early game in comparison to a night game? Oh, I, I, it's very, I mean, it's a good question, Rob. It's way different, way different. And a lot of it has to do with, I personally, I think as as a coach, I prefer as far as preparation, I prefer the earlier starts, noon to one starts. I do. Yeah, yeah. Simply because you get up, you go to breakfast, you immediately head over and you're getting right into prep for game. You're getting into get over to the weight room. I mean, get over to the training room, get 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 in the locker room, get your stuff, get on the field, walk around. I mean, it is it is you are getting up and you are getting breakfast. And it is I mean, it's basically from the minute you get dressed, it's team function stuff. And then everything is clicking. You get breakfast. You go. You, you head over to the field. You get your equipment. You then go to the – well, actually, we had to do that at the Division Three level. You had to go get your jersey and stuff. That's placed in the lockers, you know, at Notre Dame. But you go into the locker room. You, you, you get – you put whatever stuff you need on to then go into the training room. You get your treatment. You know, you get taped up. You get whatever, you know, you need to do. Then you go back to your locker. You put your – you know, you put your stuff to go out and do your walkthrough. You get out there and you, you know, doing whatever you need to do, getting your mind right. You got headphones on, you're throwing the ball around, you're getting a thousand catches in, whatever the case may be, kickers kick, whatever. And then you go back in, it's time to start getting prepped. You get dressed, you get your pads on, you do what you need to do. And then when you're, you know, you have on the board, you have the schedule for the morning on the board, you know, specialists go out, you know, you know QBs, receivers go out this time, O-line, D-line go out this time. And you go out, you do your pregame, you come back, and then you go out, and it's, it's ready to go. I mean, it is yeah. structured, man. Yeah. When you're playing a 730 game, you're you're, you're having <laughs> breakfast, and then it's like, all right, fellas, enjoy the day. Don't exactly. do anything stupid. Yeah. Right? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of downtime. And so, you know, where's your head that whole time? Are you focused on the game? Are you, are you having, 
Are, you know, are you being silly? I mean, you can you can do things and be lighthearted and still be kind of, you know, get keep your mind right kind of thing. You know, you shouldn't sit like in a corner with your headphones on for 12 hours getting ready for a game, you know, and and so but you also can't be completely goofy and acting crazy and doing silly yeah. things before a game either. And it's it's it can be a challenge to to be especially for a road team. You know, cuz like if you're if you're at home, you can you can go back to your dorm. You can go back to your house after breakfast, you know, yeah. after team meetings. When you're on the road, man, you're just kind of sitting in the hotel. You're trying to figure out things to do with them. So it is it is much harder to occupy time in the preparation. Now, once you arrive and it's time to go, the structure is exactly the same. The difference is, is you go from meal to it's time to let's start getting ready on a noon game. On a night game, it's you have your breakfast, and then it's like, what are you going to do for the next you know, 12, you know, six, seven hours before it yeah. is time to start ramping up. You'll have some team meetings and stuff, but you can't keep them occupied that entire yeah. time. Yeah. It's just impossible. I mean, it, it, when I mean occupied, I mean occupied with structured things of preparation because then you're putting too much on them mentally and physically. So it, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge for both teams. And it's, it, college football has always been growing up a noon 2.30 right. deal, noon 3.30. That, that was it. Prime time, of course, a prime time game. The big games, you love it. The anticipation all day. That's wonderful. Wonderful. But the tradition of college football is noon, 3.30. And by the time you hit 6 o'clock, you're talking about everything that's happened throughout the day. And, you know, you, the walk on different campuses to the stadiums for those teams, you know, with the sun up and all. That's the tradition of college football. So, yeah, I'm right there in that pocket for the new kickoff. I think the only people on the staff that might benefit from the primetime kickoffs would be the training staff. If they're trying to get somebody ready, that gives them yeah. maybe a little more time yeah. to get a kid ready. Rather than no. if they had played at noon, this kid can't yeah. play. He's playing at 7 o'clock. Coach may you can do a few rounds ready. of treatment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, you can definitely do that. Nathan Milton, thank you for this, the uh, question. What was the most exciting Notre Dame game of the 22 season? Last 10 years and since you have been watching Notre Dame? Mm. Well, since I've been watching Notre Dame, it's Miami-Notre Dame 88. I mean, that's still – I mean, I was 10, but that's still the most exciting game I've ever watched. I think 93 Florida State was somewhat close, but that that was a very entertaining game. I mean, those were, those were great games. I'm trying to think some more. Michigan – was the year they beat? Was the year under Davy that they beat? It was it Davy? They beat a really good Michigan team. Was the year after they won the title? That was a pretty entertaining game. I mean, so yeah. USC 05, It ended terribly, but that was an incredibly entertaining game, in my opinion. So um, those are some of the ones from all time, Sean. You, you think of some more? Most exciting game for me was the Clemson game in twenty two. Without question, 20, uh, you mean uh, the most exciting game of the twenty two season? Twenty two season, okay. Yes, agree completely on that one. This Clemson yeah. game, last ten years since you said ten years, I think that two thousand twelve season slips out of that because it's been longer yep. than a decade. Yep. So that would put me probably. I mean, I could throw the Clemson game at home during the pandemic. I could say that, but for me, the look, Trevor Lawrence wasn't playing, so I really, right, <laughs> you know. I'm going to say, and it is a loss, but I remember this because it was the night of my mother's birthday dinner, and I kept sneaking away from the table. 2014 Florida State. 
Hmm. Was an incredible. You talk about an exciting football game. It was absolutely amazing. And even though they took the game away from Notre Dame at the end, that game gave me everything I wanted in a Notre Dame big time matchup and big time football game. Since I've been watching Notre Dame, I mean, 88 has to stick up there. Florida State, though, that Florida State game in 93. Yeah, I think the USC game from 17 was was a lot like that. Mm. Exciting. I mean, because they just jumped all over USC early, and the crowd was just loving it. Electric. I, mean, I was I was watching the highlights of that again the other night. You know, just from the from the start. I mean, you you know, you go three and out. Brandon Wimbush has Josh Adams wide open on a check down that if he throws it to him, Josh has got just green grass and well, green yeah. turf in front of him. Doesn't get it. They punt. They go about the next series. Tavon just rips it away from Sam Darnold, and the route was on. And that was a pretty exciting game. The 2015 Tech Notre Dame USC game might have been the most because one of the one of the questions I often get asked is like, you know, what's some of the loudest environments you've ever been a part of? And I think yeah. that 15 USC game was really wild. That was a really entertaining because you know, if you remember, Sean, that game didn't start off really well. No, I mean. It didn't. Quarterback came out. They moved the ball just, down the field. Just yeah. right down the field, man. I mean, it was a Cody Kessler, right? Cody was Kessler. a quarterback on that year? Yeah. Just, I mean, just do, 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 bam, touchdown. And you're like, well, this is interesting. <clears throat> and then that very next play, uh, Deshaun throws a poster out to Will Fuller, and you're like, and for a 75-yard touchdown, and they literally thought they could they could have um, they could have a Dory Jackson defender. Dory Jackson. I mean, they, they really thought that they could do that. <laughs> And, uh, and obviously that didn't, uh, didn't work out really well for them, but you know, just that, that game was just exciting. We had to block punt for a touchdown, yeah. you know, Notre Dame jumped on USC early They're up 21, 10 early. Uh, you had some big plays. USC comes back and ties it. Remember that they had two, they had a 75 yard touchdown pass on the foot on the fake where Juju Smith actually threw it to Jalen green or I forget which, which way. And then you had the long run by Ronald Jones. Or excuse me, by Dory Jackson, the the long play by Dory Jackson. They ran a screen and yeah. Notre Dame missed, and he went for. And next thing you know, it's twenty four twenty four. USC then takes a thirty one twenty four lead in the half in the fourth quarter. Notre Dame comes back, they go ahead, and uh, and win the game. That was a pretty loud and intense game. You know, it was a back and forth game because the seventeen game was loud, but it wasn't an exciting game after like the second quarter. It was like okay. This one's over, yeah. you know. You enjoyed it, but the 15 game to me was even more exciting. I thought that was that was a really intense game. Yeah, the 88 season. You can do the first the Michigan game in 88 is a classic, yeah. a classic. Just two teams, heavyweight fight. It's like Ali it's old school football. We're just man. gonna stand in the middle of the ring and just hit yeah. each other. Yeah, four you quarters. Know, you know what? You know the you know the best. You know what the best example of what the Lou Holtz Bo Schembechler games were. It's not it, to me. It's not Holyfield. Fra- I mean uh, Muhammad Ali and Frazier. It's Hagler Hearns, man. Oh yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Like that That's is just call. like I it mean, just just, just, <laughs> hey, make us something from the start. Yes. <laughs> I mean, from jump, from jump. Like, there's no we, way this fight's going 12 rounds. Was, was that Oscar McBride we talked to? Who was that that we spoke to? And they said, "Yo, that Miami game, we knew we could physically push them around." Yeah, that was all. That was all. And, and they were like, "Yo, that Michigan game, yeah, was a, was yeah. A totally." Different Michigan piece. was always a very physical team, man. man. Very physical team. Yeah. 
So good, uh, good question, baby. You know, another Thanks. really exciting game, Sean. That that uh, that I'm reminded of is is um, well, I'd say the 18 Michigan game in the first half was really exciting. The second half was kind of a little bit more boring. But mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you a really sneaky, entertaining, exciting game that a lot of people don't talk about is uh, the Virginia game in 2015. We don't talk about it a lot because it's the game that Malika hurt, but that was a really good football game. And that Virginia crowd was intense. I mean, it was intense. Notre Dame jumped on them early. Virginia came back. I mean, and, and I guess maybe game. it was. I'm very I'm sure. exciting. Yeah, very but exciting. That that might also be a bit of a bias for me because Virginia has one of the out has an outdoor press box. So we were like in it. I mean, we can hear the energy, and normally we 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 can't. So perhaps there's a little bit of bias there, but that was a really if you just and and here's another this is one from not ten years ago, but I hate how it turned out. Really hate how it turned out. The 2011 Michigan Notre Dame game was very entertaining, but you know one that that talk about excitement. The the we don't talk enough about because it was terrible for a half. But the second half against Michigan State in 06 was one of the best halves of most exciting halves of football I've I've yeah. I've seen because yeah. they were down like what like 31 to 10 at one yeah. point time in that game something yeah. crazy like that. And came back and won. What was the what were they down? I'm gonna look that up real quick, Sean. What were they down? It was like 31 to 10, 38 that, to 17, what, something like that. Yeah, that was um, what Drew Stanton was that Drew Stanton. I believe was the so. Michigan yeah, State I believe Drew Stanton was the quarterback. Yeah. Um, yeah, he 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 was in he, they didn't throw for much that yard. Remember Matt Tran oh. threw a touchdown pass that game? Yeah. But yeah, they were up. There were a lot 30, of turnovers and they just took advantage of big certain things. Early it was 31 in the game, 14. Yeah. It was 24-7 in the second quarter, then at 31-14 at halftime. Yeah. It was 37-21 going into the fourth quarter. And uh and Notre Dame scored 19 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. That was a once it went down to, I mean, if you think about it, it was 24 to 7 midway in the third quarter. Notre Dame outscored them 33 to 13 the rest of the way. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that was a and, and you're doing it in the rain. Brady's throwing <laughs> dimes in the rain and the wind. And hitting John Carlson over the middle, hitting Rayma on just one of the most perfectly placed yeah. fade routes you're ever going to see. Uh, Samarja with the catch and the slant, stopping in the rain, letting the guy what, go fly, Lambert by, cuts it back six. outside, and then the pick six to end it all. Yeah, and then the pick to really end it on the sideline there, where yeah, it who, bounced who off. Who caught one that? Of the was defenders. that Chinadoom? Who caught, or was it Terrell caught that well, one? Too? I think that was Terrell that caught Terrell that caught one too. It too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a very entertaining second half of a yeah. game. There is no doubt about that. That was a that was a fun second half. Very fun second half. That's a. I, I like questions like that. Thank you, Nathan. That's a good one. Thank you for the super chat, Tyler Evans. Top three games you can't watch this upcoming season, but it can't be a Notre Dame game. You, I think he meant you can't wait to can't watch. Can't wait to watch. Yeah, yeah. But it can't be a Notre Dame game. Uh, you know, there's some really good non-conference games this year that I'm looking forward to, Sean. Um, you know, obviously Texas and Oklahoma, Texas and Alabama is one that mm-hmm. I'm very curious about. I think the first couple weeks of the season, Sean, has some great games. I think I'm really looking forward to the LSU-Florida State game. Really Absolutely. looking forward to that game. I'll That's going to be a big one for me. In yeah, August, that is a sleeper, in my opinion, because I okay. think it's really pivotal. The Gators going out to Utah. Yep. Yeah, that's going to be a very interesting one. That's telling for both teams. Because I think Utah, once again, is going to compete. They get a lot of people back. 
they were really young, especially defensively last year. They, you know, their running back was a guy that came in and they moved him from the defensive side of the ball and eventually ended up being very productive. Yo, I think they're going to be a really good team, more mature, ready to go. They're looking to be in the, in the running for the college football playoff in this season. I, I think they get Andy Utah. Luck. Yes, they get Andy Luck. And no back. one talks about them. Yeah, no one talks back about back to back Pac 12 champs, and everybody talks yeah. about Washington, Oregon, and USC. Yeah. And they yeah. get Florida coming in who beat them down in the swamp with Richardson last year. So mm-hmm. I think that's one I really am going to enjoy man, watching. They had so many chances to win that game. They definitely had so chances many chances to win, to win that, that game. game. Two games that pop out to me, Sean, that are conference games that I'm very intrigued by. I mean, there's a tons, but two mm-hmm. for me are number one, Florida State Clemson. Yeah. This is this is going to be a game that is saying, okay, it's kind of like you know Clemson's that old grizzled vet, right? That um, hey, we've dominated this conference for a decade. We want to deal with you, little upstart. But Florida State, that's teams like, hey, we don't care that you dominated the league the last ten years. We dominated it for twenty before that, and it's a battle for supremacy in the conference. And you know Clemson's obviously dominated that matchup uh, in recent seasons, and and. And, and honestly, it was the Clemson-Florida State game, what was it, 2015? Was it 2014? I think it was that was the one where you kind of like, okay, Clemson's Clemson's for real. Like this is this isn't the same Clemson team that we've seen in the past. It was that it was that really grinded out game in 15 at Clemson that you started to be like, okay, it's like there this isn't the same choke artist because Florida State had won. You know, three in a row, they'd blown them out a couple times and, and they'd choke some games away, you know. And Clemson and Florida State was coming off. They had won a national title in 13. They made a playoff appearance in 14. You know, the year that they won the national championship, they absolutely obliterated a, a really highly ranked Clemson team. I mean, just destroyed them. And that was sort of like a, a passing of the torch, so to speak. And Clemson hasn't lost to them since. I mean, literally has not lost to them since. Last year was really the first time they'd even played in a competitive game since 2016. And so is the torch going to get passed again, or is it just a now we've got two? Like, is Florida State coming up as Clemson's going down, or is it finally going to be, okay, we have two heavyweights in the ACC this year? And so you play that off the backdrop of, if let's say Florida State beats LSU, and then Clemson beats Florida State, and they're both 10 and 2, 11 and 1. You start to get into the notion of, hey, maybe the ACC is not just Clemson and everybody else anymore. There's two great teams. Or is, is Florida State going to be the final blow that says, Clemson, you're going down now? My hope is that it's they, they both look like powers this year. I think it's better that the ACC be better. Yeah, uh, but that's an interesting game. And then the the other conference game for me, Sean, is Michigan Ohio State. I am really curious to see how Ohio State responds to what happened to them in the last two years. Like, like I I mean, I thought it was going to be la- I thought la- you're at home, you know, they embarrassed you, and then Michigan ran their mouths the entire off season. Jim Harbaugh, senior head coach, you know, was born on third base, so to speak. I'm like, where's your pride? And they just let Michigan do that to them in the second half. It just this you know. this might be the first time going into that matchup because I'm telling you how I'm feeling right now on June 2nd. I don't know how I'm going to feel on that last Saturday in November. But as I sit right now, 
I feel like Michigan has the better team. I feel like Michigan has the better team. Better I'm team, t- yes. More talent. Not team, talent. No, better no, no. team. Yeah. I feel like Michigan has the better You're team. You're talking like culture built now, around. It, like yeah. it doesn't matter what Ohio State does. Yeah. When they face off, they have the form. They have the better yeah. team. And that is going to be telling because I expect Ohio State to have at least one loss in South Bend where they walk up into Michigan State. Mm-hmm. And that game is going to mean a lot for the direction of that program. Yeah. A lot. And if John if John Harbaugh, I mean Jim Harbaugh wanted to put the nail, the proverbial nail in the coffin of Ryan Day, he would go a long way to possibly making that happen. If they mm-hmm. beat, especially if they beat them the way they, they beat the them the previous game. two years. Oh or just you're just that you just out physical them really for four yes. quarters. Yes. I mean, the only reason any of those games are even close is because Ohio State could still make big plays in the past game. I mean, that's really only the reason. I mean, like we have Archer's talked about this in the show. Well, hey, it was close at this point. Sometimes those things can be misleading. Like Ohio State fans will say that about the Notre Dame game. Well, you know, it was misleading, but blah, 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 blah. Well, it's true of that game, too. It was never as close as the score showed. The second half, Michigan actually dominated Ohio State. Both. It's kind of like when when Ohio State did that to Michigan, and I think Harbaugh's first year was it was it his first year? It was like thirteen ten at halftime, but you were watching that game and you're like, this is this is not a close game. No, Michigan. And then the second half, and Ohio State went out and just ran them. Another game like that, Alabama Michigan State playoff game. It was like seven nothing at halftime, but you're like, this is not a seven to nothing ball game. Alabama should be up. 24 and then the second half what does bama do they hold put like 30 on them in the second half sometimes the score is not always indicative of of how the game is being played and michigan just out physical ohio state so is what's the culture of ohio state how do they respond to that especially sean to your point if you're correct and they have a loss at that point in time they're playing for their playoff survival if that doesn't get you amped up and ready to play then i don't know what does and i think it's only fitting that they broke the streak uh, or that you know that, that that you break the streak basically at their place. It started yeah. at their place, right? They yeah. embarrassed you at their place. Now you you break it at, at your at their place and kind of yeah. get that that redemption in that regard. I just I just don't know. After last year, I don't have a, as much faith in Ohio State to get it done. I think Ohio State will be a better team this year, but I don't know if they're going to necessarily have a better record than they did last year because of those two games being on the road. Yeah. And I think Penn State's going to be better this year than they were last year in a lot of ways as well. So it's going to be interesting. It's a big year. Because the one thing people will say about about Ryan Day is, well, he's still like 45 and 6. And you're like, you're absolutely correct. But this is the danger. That was the reason they couldn't fire Cooper for so many years, despite Ohio State fans wanting him gone, is because he kept winning every year. Winning every year, yeah. But he had those two down years. He went 8 and 4 and 6 and 6, and he was out. So if you're Ryan Day, you know, you keep going 11 and 2 every year, you're going to stay around because you're really good. But you have that that year where you stub your toe and, and drop down to nine and three. Yeah. And all of a sudden, those calls get a lot louder. I'm not saying they should. I'm just saying that's just the reality of it, you know. But just simply losing to Michigan, no. But if they, if they have that disaster of a, you know, where you lose to all three of the good teams you play, that could – because I don't know what's worse for Ohio State fans, losing to Michigan or losing to Notre Dame. Because Michigan's your rival, Notre Dame's a team you have zero respect for. Like right. you just think they're beneath you, you know. And uh, if you if you were to somehow lose to both of them the same year, 
<laughs> I would not want to hang out in the state of Ohio much if that were to happen, Sean, at all. I would love to walk through Ohio if that happened. Yeah. With a with a bullhorn right in the middle of campus. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That's be that's be that'd be dangerous for you. <laughs> yeah, it would. You'll probably want me by your side, right? I imagine with yeah, uh, with your with your uh, with your with your <laughs> microwave, as as we call it sometimes. <laughs> Heat it up real quick, baby. <laughs> John A. One with the addition of Carter the second. What are the chances Indy fields to start Notre the Indy caliber safeties in twenty three? How many secondaries can stack up with Indy if it has two good players at safety? I mean, I think if if the safety rotation is simply Xavier Watts doing what he did the last four games, Ramon Henderson being who he was last year, and DJ Brown being who he was last year, this is still one of the five best secondaries in college football because of how good the corners are. And And look, I know the safeties aren't great, but they weren't bad last year. There's this notion like they were bad last year. They weren't. They weren't great by any stretch, yeah. but they weren't bad. If Antonio Carter or Ramon Henderson, because you know Carter could be that guy, but if let's say Ramon Henderson finally kind of the light goes on for him, man, it's it's I mean it's it, top three secondary potentially. I mean, there's still mm-hmm. something. Look, Cam Hart's got to be more consistent. He's got to stay healthy, and Benjamin Morrison has to avoid the sophomore slump. And there's a lot of things go into it, but potentially, it could be a top three secondary next year. Plus. We're, we're, you know, Thomas Harper is a part of my thought process on how good the secondary is going to be as well, because they're going to play a lot of nickel this year. And I have a lot of faith in him. So they have depth, they have talent, they have high impact talent. I honestly think the, the, the safety position is going to be more defined by Xavier Watts than a second guy emerging. If the other three guys are just yeah. solid as part of the rotation, but Xavier's a dude that makes them better. Now, ideally, you'd like two guys to step up and be dudes, right, Sean? I mean, I yeah. get that, but I'm yeah. just trying to have more of a realistic uh, conversation. That's kind of how I look at it, Sean. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you're talking about a young man that you feel like is still ascending. So the expectation with Xavier Watts is, yeah, look, he has this vibe on him where he's just a playmaker. He's just a playmaker. I think the play he made in the Gator Bowl where he – uh, pretty much it was a touchdown. He gets his fingertips on the ball and passes yeah. it and knocks it down. That You see that and you're like, okay, that's the type of play that he has in him. And if he can be more consistent, that's going to help out. Consistency is what we're looking for right. from the young man because we know the level of play because we've seen it. But we just need him to be more consistent. Mm-hmm. And him being more consistent could lead to what we asked for with the defense creating more turnovers because he has that type of ability to be able to go ahead, make plays on the ball, um, knock balls out of ball carriers' hands, create fumbles. He just has that vibe to be around the ball and make plays because anytime he goes over to the offense last fall when they had him, he was making 50-50 catches over DBs. He's just a playmaker, man. He's just that type of kid. So I agree. Ramon, for me, is a kid. He's the type of kid that you just pull for because you're like, yo, this kid has so much ability. If the light goes on and he finally gets it or it finally clicks, 
Notre Dame could really have something. So, you mm-hmm. know, those two guys for me are the first safeties on my list that I want to see take a step forward. The transfers in are really are, are good players. Mm-hmm. And they they give you stability in mind. Stability, they give you the same stability of DJ with a little bit more athleticism, if that makes sense. Right? Because DJ is just that consistent, he's gonna be in the right place, make the right call, do what he's supposed to do, be a leader. But it's like, man, DJ, if you were just a little bit faster and a little bit rangier, you would be everything we could want at safety at Notre Dame. But unfortunately, he's not. So that's that's a good question. That's a good question. I think the safety position, we talked about this yesterday, right? I think safety position has been vastly underrated at Notre Dame. Yeah, agree. I'm not and I think part that. of it is because the only time you tend to see safeties is a lot of times is when they're making a mistake. Making a mistake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 